1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In
0: this week's podcast, we're going to talk about polygamy a little bit. I feel
2: like- Not really. Th- is it season 38 already? Season 38. I, uh, the people cry out. I I don't care how much the people <laughs> cry out. I, I don't think we're going to be doing- Well, we, so it's it's an impossible- I feel like we're being, impossible I'm
1: being forced to do something on polygamy against my will at this point.
0: So the it, there there was a specific uh, thing that we're going to talk about, and polygamy is part of that thing, and so uh, polygamy will be brought up, but we won't be. Richard and I had
1: language. a professor in college um, that we we took the same class mainly because uh, what why actually why in the world were you taking I don't know, you hist- told me an upper
2: division I was a history biology, class I was a
0: biology major and and he washed out of that I, just so everyone knows.
2: <laughs> 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 For those of you listening who are thinking, what level of biologist is Dr. Oh, oh, yeah, we yeah, did watch out
0: on that. Uh, but so um, you you said – I had to take, a, I don't know, a certain number of basic whatever classes. And but
1: but it was an upper division.
0: It was a terrible Civil class. Civil
1: War history class.
0: You recommended – to me what to take this What kind class. of a
1: horrible person am I? T- the worst. You Are recommended- we even friends? Th- it was the worst class that I've. I've it, was, it was
0: absolutely well, no, brutal class. A great professor. Oh, he was great, yeah. Very smart. But he, very he was, very he hard was so
1: difficult, so hard a grader, that I got my first paper back from him. And, and I was pretty disappointed because I got a 90% on it. And I was like, jeez. I really worked hard on this. And so I asked the guy next to me who was a senior, because I was a freshman taking this class because it was an upper division history class. I asked the guy next to me who was a senior and I was like, Hey, how'd you, how'd you do on? He's like, Oh man. All right. I guess. I mean, I got a 70 and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, What'd you get? Yeah, I mean similar. Yeah. You know, because at that point you don't wanna, you know, but um, in fact I remember when I was meeting for graduation at Utah State, the uh the head, the department chair was going through my transcript. When he saw that I'd gotten an A in this professor's class, he was like, Oh, you really are ready to graduate. You got
0: an A in the class? Yeah, the class was brutal. The class Why
1: was, did I tell you? Because I we thought took, I could help took, you through it or something?
0: Probably. I think you wrote all my papers. No, the the thing is, Man. is that... <laughs> no. <laughs> Only half of them. No, no. So we, we took actually several classes together. We took several history... I took a couple history classes you recommended. We took multiple and then, philosophy classes Yeah, those together. those classes were a blast. Yeah,
1: religious philosophy classes. Everything I know, I learned with Richard in, in a <laughs> philosophical true. class.
0: The, the philosophy classes were were a blast. But anyway, so this particular professor, you do... a so this is the thing. This will be funny to no one except for me. That's the list. So essentially.
2: So, yeah, that's right. That, uh, but you do What he impression. just described is this the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to laugh about something that people are like.
1: I, I go, mean, I ca- guess. Can we go back to townships? I mean, that was more entertaining than what they're
0: doing now. But anyway, so. Well, the so.
1: He was very exacting. And I mean, he was, he was terrifying, honestly. I, I feel like I'm telling too much of a story now. But you know what? This is, this is just for you guys to sit back. You're, you're on a commute. Just enjoy this. We're going to get to polygamy in 45 minutes. In 45 seasons. But anyway, uh, I was terrified. I took his class when I was a freshman. I hadn't taken any other history class in college yet. And so he started the class by saying, this is a very difficult class. He was always very... yeah He had a very short <laughs> Eastern accent, right? He said, this... It's a very difficult class. If you are not a senior or an extremely talented junior, you need to drop the class right now. And I'm sitting there as a freshman first class I've taken in college. And so I'm like, uh, So I went up and I talked to him. And I was like, um, I like to read history and stuff. <laughs>
2: I don't know what I said, but I'm sure it came across. No, to you him were like one of the
1: friend. little rascals, like rubbing your with yeah. your hands in your pockets, Jeez, shuffling
2: feet. <laughs> Jeez, Mister, do you think I can still take this class? And
1: and I said I, I'm a, a, a freshman, but I, I really love Civil War history. I've I studied it a lot. And he was, like, you're a freshman. He rolled
2: his eyes at me and said, "Good luck," and then walked <laughs> away. So that, but but the reason why we bring him up. That's Wait, so let good. me tell you one more story about it. Okay, I,
1: I'm sorry to everyone listening. Oh my gosh. Please is... just fast forward to like 10 minutes in. yeah,
2: And then... You'll be in the middle of it. And okay. then fast forward another 10 minutes. <laughs> and,
0: and... Then, and then throw your uh,
2: phone into a lake. <laughs> and then we'll still not be on the topic when you get your phone back from that lake. To give you an idea how scary he was.
1: So again, now it's my my second day of class. Second day of class. We're in this building that... that it, it, for those of you who went to Utah State um, for those of you true Aggies out there um, uh, my my it, wife's a true Aggie yeah what about you I am not but
2: how about that how about you, that
1: can't you become a true Aggie because your wife is one yeah sure like but through marriage well I think you have
0: to I went. To, so I went to Utah State for two years I went to every college in the greater mountain west anyway I've, I've interrupted
1: no please go on <laughs> <laughs> what That's... other colleges have you
0: failed out of <laughs> didn't fail out, I transferred, but
2: yes. Yeah, well the, only one of them was because of the honor code. But um the uh the,
1: this classroom, this this building, Old Main, So you know old Main if you went to Utah State. If you don't, it's this super old building. As the name implies. Yeah,
0: it's right there in the
2: name.
1: It's a really old building. And so the air conditioning in it is non-existent. Aside. I mean, no. I'm sure they say they have air conditioning, but if you're there for a summer term, it's scorching inside. And uh, there was a student who came to class one day, uh, the second day of class, and made the mistake of reading a newspaper in the back of the class while this guy was lecturing. I, I thought that this guy must have like pulled a gun or something <laughs> because the professor was lecturing. he's like, and that's why the North utilized the industrial heartland. And then he screamed, <laughs> what is that? What is that? And so we all look, are you reading a newspaper in my class? Get out. You have failed the class. You have failed. You just failed. Get out. Yeah. Terrifying. Okay. Wow. And so I was like, Richard should take this class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no. So I told you that story so I could tell you this one. It was summer term uh the classes were really long and it was really really hot back then uh utah state was on a quarter system which was just another way to torture you if you took a summer if you took a summer term and uh it was right after lunch and i again i would love to tell everyone uh that i was studiously hitting the books every day and you know staying up late just trying to but what i had been doing is for the past week we had been staying up till almost two in the morning every night, having Mario Kart tournaments in my in my apartment, and and which I won. Um, but um, and so I I came in, and you all know what it's like when you're falling asleep. So it's I I'd just eaten lunch, I I had like four hours of sleep the night before. It was so hot in the room and I could feel myself falling asleep. Feel it. I, I feel it. I'm doing the head bob thing where your head kind of like goes forward and then you, you like bring it back up and you like, you know, you, you whiplash it. The yourself. listeners
0: of our podcast are very familiar with this.
2: <laughs> All of you right now, you know how you're driving right now and your, your eyes are nodding off to the side?
1: That. And so I feel myself. So I'm doing every trick in the book to try to stay awake. It's, it's a two-hour class. I'm like 30 minutes in. And and so I'm pinching myself. I'm biting my tongue. I, I am legitimately at one point taking a pen and jamming it into my hand, hoping that the pain will keep me awake. Because I just watched him throw a student out of class permanently for reading a newspaper. I can only imagine were I to fall asleep in that class that, you know, they... They'd be holding memorial services for me, uh, and this uh, this professor would be the one at, you know speaking at him. But at any rate, I try as I might, I must have fallen asleep. Now the way that we were sitting in the room, it was kind of a semi-circle around the room, and I was on the second tier of of desks with the wall right right behind my head. And when I fell asleep, my head must have gone backward rather than forward. And so what awoke me was what the, the thunderous sound of my head slamming into the wall. It was so loud and so hard that it woke me up. And it just, you know, just, I, I don't know. How, I mean, I can't, you know, replicate it here in, in what we call a studio, but is really just a spare bedroom. Um, uh, and, of
2: course, he was on the other side of the classroom, thankfully. Whips around like he is ready to—he's ready to fail yet another student,
1: and everybody looks over. And you know, I can only credit the spirit with giving me the idea of what to do next because everyone looked over at me, and so I just looked behind me, like the sound had come from outside of them. What is going? So, so I look behind me. Everyone looks. He's got daggers shooting out of his eyes. He sees us all looking at the wall behind me. And then he just goes back to lecturing. I the only reason I'm here today, the only reason I got my degree was thankfully he he didn't realize. But we told you all those stories to tell you this one. <laughs> First of all, I I can't imagine why you took his class.
0: I can't either. I can't imagine I why someone's have...
1: still listening to this a little bit. No one's listening to this. That's the best part. <laughs> I my told you that, my so mom's I'm listening you if this. she can figure out how to download it. Rachel's listening. I think Ari gave up on us after we wouldn't pronounce Missouri the right way. I mean, but uh, uh, the, the way that he taught was, he was, he was a great teacher. Look, I, I, I was terrified of him, but he was a phenomenal teacher. And uh, the way he taught, though, was because he, he's, he's a historian, the reality is no matter what comment you ever made, it was never exactly right because it couldn't be. And so he did this in both of our classes, every time anyone made a point. So if, if, if someone would raise their hand and say, so does that mean that, that Southerners during the war were deliberately holding cotton back so that they could they could you know, cause the British to intervene because they needed Southern cotton?" And he would get very contemplative. I mean, eyes would kind of he'd, 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 he'd relax back into himself put his hands up to his, up to his face. And he'd say, that's, that's part of it. That's part of it. That's part.
0: He would say that four he or five would, times. He would class. say
1: that's part of it to any yeah. comment that Absolutely. was ever made. Yeah. I it, mean, I remember making a comment about the religiosity of Abraham Lincoln, because he had made a very big point that Abraham Lincoln wasn't a member of any, you know, denomination. Right. So, so he wasn't, you know, you weren't able to have the Presbyterians just get right behind him. And, uh, and I and I I read in class the the letter that, that he had written to this this woman who had lost multiple um children in the civil war, where Abraham Lincoln, you know, references the Lord and hoping that the Lord would come for. Of course, you also have the the second inaugural address where Lincoln points out pretty clearly that um that that it is possibly the judgments of God because of slavery that have caused the war to be so terrible. And so, you know, I, I brought this up as as Lincoln's religiosity, you know, and and he very, very contemplatively, you know that's part of it. That's part of it. It's part of it.
2: It's part of it. I,
1: yeah, no, that's
0: exactly it. It was it was absolutely hilarious his but class was, I still class I'm great.
1: actually rethinking. Whether or not I'm a good person, if I suggested to you. Oh, there's no reason. Yeah, no. I've already rethought it, and you're not. Next week, our co-host will be
2: (laughs) Angie, my wife, as Richard is no longer my friend. once he, This is 21 years in the making. He realized, why did you have me take that class?
0: Probably the same reason I went back to go get my PhD. You're like, oh, you're going to love it. That's like a quote. Oh my gosh! No, oh my, you're gonna I,
1: love it. Well, I you're recall multiple it. conversations where I, I begged Richard. I pleaded
2: with him. I said, Richard, it will be the worst thing that you have ever done in your life.
0: We we've joked about this too. Like it's like going on a mission, right? Like when you're getting ready to go on a mission, people who have been on missions are like, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, and it's you're gonna love it the most. It's the greatest yeah. experience of your life, and it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And then you get out on your mission. You're like, "How come no one told me and this you're was like, going to be so hard?" Why did
2: everyone
1: lie to me about this? <laughs> this is the. Wor- I mean, because you, you know, all you hear when someone tells the stories, right? Like, there I was, my companion wanted to go back early to the apartment. Where I said, "No, Elder, we're going to finish knocking every door on this street." It was raining
2: my mission it rained twice a year <laughs> but it was raining in every story that you ever told about your mission and we knocked on that last door with the light on
1: whole family was baptized I
2: mean that's that's yeah. what you hear in, in that every family, welcome home David A. Bedmark. <laughs> yeah that's what you hear from every <laughs> so now you converted an apostles family <laughs> British it. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, the point is that. Oh my goodness! I apologize to everybody. This is worse than the Treaty of Guadalupe <laughs> oh, Hidalgo. So much worse. We're going to do the Mexican War. Wait, we, we have plans. Oh. We have plans to do some um,
1: some history related, uh, the ones that are just history, for those of you who are tired of talking about religion. Well, so, well, so yeah, no, that's the thing. So last
0: last week's podcast was about the Fourth of July, and how much. Uh, early members of the church hated the country. And, that so, is not and true. so now we're going to do a whole
1: U.S. history, uh, a bunch of episodes on U.S. Right. history. And, you know, that, I mean, I, obviously I, I love U.S. history and we're going to talk about it. But um, the reason why I brought up that certain professor was um, there is so much about plural marriage. There are so many different aspects to it. There are so many different time periods. There are so many different people who practice it that the reality is it's tr- like trying to wrap your arms around a cloud, right? Y- y- you can't really ever do it because no matter what you try, it something escapes you. So we're not going to dive deep into it, but one of the questions we're going to respond to today, if there's any time left, you can tell I've deliberately tried, Oh, and we're out of time. Yeah. We'll Thank you for about joining co- us Yeah, we'll be talking the- about
2: college for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, is there any way we could talk about what kind of uh, cable I- I'm subscribing to uh, so that we can get past
1: the time? But um, this, this topic we're going to talk about today touches on plural marriage, and so because of that, I want to, uh, um, I-, I want, you know... To, to just let everyone know, I'm not going to be able to go into everything there is, and I'm certainly not going to be able to answer every question on plural marriage. Anyone who claims that they have every answer to plural marriage is 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 selling you something. They're probably wearing a seersucker suit and they've got a giant inflatable arm flapping person behind them saying, "What's what's it going to do to to, to get you into this car?" So, so that the whole reason I, I even thought of that professor of ours was we're we're going to talk about plural marriage, but just it's just, just part of it. Part that's of it. part of it, <laughs> part and and essentially any answer I give you is, it's just, it, it's it's part of it, and and that honestly that's kind of the way you need to approach that topic. I know that every person who's ever you know decided to film anything for Netflix thinks they know everything there is to know about Latter Day Saint practice of plural marriage, but the reality is we're talking about tens of thousands of people over the course of. Three quarters of a century, there are so many different experiences, different sources. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of individual sources on the topic, depending on what era and what you're talking about. So, no matter what we cover, like our esteemed and also feared professor from yesteryear, it's just, it's, it's part of it. It's just part of it. So, you have to, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So an email that we received, gentlemen,
0: well, first of all, that's that's already higher praise yeah, than we I, deserve.
1: I feel like he doesn't. He hasn't listened to very many of the podcasts. Obviously not. He certainly didn't listen to the last 18 minutes.
0: <laughs> gentlemen, on the topic of uncanonized revelations of Joseph Smith, I would be very interested to hear your thoughts on the 1831 revelation attributed to Joseph Smith by W.W. W. Phelps in his 1861 letter to Brigham Young. This reported revelation includes the noteworthy comment about how the – early elders were supposed to take unto themselves wives of the Lamanites and Nephites that their posterity may become white, delightsome and just for even now their females are more, or are more virtuous than the Gentiles. This text is cited by some Joseph Smith researchers to say nothing of fundamentalist Mormons to argue that plural marriage was on Joseph's mind much earlier than his 1835 marriage to Fanny Alger and his 1841 uh, ceiling to Louisa Beeman. Do you believe this revelation can be reliably attributed, attributed to Joseph Smith? I noticed the Joseph Smith papers omits this text as a Joseph Smith document, but does include other purported revelations. Thanks for your tremendously interesting discussion on this subject and for your otherwise great podcast. Cheers,
1: Stephen. Well, thank you, Stephen. That 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 was quite an erudite email. Yeah, and, very well uh, written. And, and I realize that this is a little bit in the weeds, but if you want me to talk about plural marriage at all... That's the
0: only way we're going to get yeah, that. The only
1: way we're going to do it is in a way that's completely non-replicatable <laughs> by anyone. No, um, what he's referencing is that there is um, an 1861 letter that is written um, to Brigham Young... By uh, W. W. Phelps, so Phelps obviously longtime member of the church, and in this letter he provides the text of a revelation that he will will state is is coming from Joseph Smith from July of 1831. Now, one of the things that that uh, Stephen points out and and, and Stephen himself is a, is a researcher and a teacher of, of, of early church history, so I, I think this is that's why this is something that's on his mind, um, is that this is not a featured document in what would have been Documents Volume 1 or Documents Volume 2 of the Joseph Smith Papers. When I say a featured document, what I mean is it's not one of the things that we present as, hey, here's a Joseph Smith document. And as you know from our previous podcast, we— that the Joseph Smith papers featured revelations whether or not they were published, right? So if Joseph wrote a revelation down in his journal, that's still a revelation as far as the Joseph Smith papers are concerned, even if it wasn't ever published. And, So there's a lot of things that go into determining whether or not something is a Joseph Smith document. And so maybe it wouldn't be too bad to spend a little bit of time on this anyway because most of you have stopped listening because we talked about our early academic days. I also mentioned townships in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Why don't we just go for broke and I talk to you about archival decisions about whether or not something constitutes being a, quote, Joseph Smith document. What we mean by that is there's a certain criteria, right? So, let's say you're going to publish all the all of the papers of George Washington. Well, how are you going to decide whether or not something is a paper of George Washington? Some things are pretty easy, right? Here's all the letters that George Washington wrote. Okay? Well, that's that's pretty easy. Um, but what about uh here is the minutes of meetings that George Washington was in. Okay. Well, okay, with the the meeting but here's someone who, 40 years after Washington is dead, is claiming that he remembers word for word what was said in the minutes of a meeting when they were planning to attack the, the Hessians you know, in the Battle of Trenton. Well, is that a George Washington... They're saying this is what Washington said, and they're giving it word for word, and Washington said this well most washington researchers would say that's an interesting comment but it's not the same thing as a a, a a viable washington document so if we had someone writing in their journal right who was there president washington well, he wasn't present yet but maybe you know what Maybe he had foreknowledge. Maybe he was one of the people praying with him in Valley Forge. Well, it was 40 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. President Washington said to me, well, if he's writing it in the journal at the time. Oh, I see. see. Yeah, if he's writing it at the time, then then that would make a researcher feel much more comfortable. And this is a real problem, especially when it comes to Joseph Smith materials. Uh, In fact, there's lots of people who contact us and say things like, hey, how come you didn't include – what my grandfather said Joseph Smith told him as one of the documents. Well, because generally speaking, and, and look, different projects have different standards, but generally speaking, reminiscent accounts, meaning when someone is looking back and saying, Oh yes, I remember so-and-so said this, are not strictly speaking considered representations of of that that speaker or that that person from the past. Now, that doesn't mean that 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 person didn't actually hear Joseph Smith speak. What it means is it's far too unreliable decades after the fact for someone to try to recreate word for word what it is that was said. And if you all want to, you know, you can you can play this game very quickly right now. All of you right now, get out a piece of paper. See, now I'm going to be the professor. Right. And this will be just part of it. Um, Get out a piece of paper. Write down, you can pause this if you want. Don't do it if you're driving. Or if you are, we're not liable. Um, write down word for word what the youth speaker in your ward said last Sunday. Write it down word for word. You were there, or at least you're gonna tell everyone you were there. You'll tell me that you were there in an email that you write and that Richard reads. Um that that what not just the gist of it, not just, oh, I know that she spoke on blessings. Word for word, write it down. Now, you might say, well, that's different. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if if it had been, you know, if if President Ballard had been there, then then I would have, you know, paid much more greater attention, which, you know, shame on you. You should pay attention from anyone who's speaking from the pulpit. But even then, if I were to say, write down word for word what Elder Rukdorf said in his conference talk, not one that you've already heard once, and you've probably studied it a second time in in you know Relief Society or in your in your priesthood organization.
0: Well, so we actually had an experience uh, several years ago where uh, Elder Perry came to speak to our ward. It was an awesome experience. I hope it was
1: quite a few years ago. It was yeah, probably about. I mean, about I don't. I mean, ten years ago.
2: This is a completely different story if Elder Perry talked to you a week Recently, you yeah, know. Yeah, this is a, that he would be it would be speaker. a much better story.
0: But It still. was about 10 years ago and he came and spoke. And I've uh I've heard a an apostle speak live maybe one other time in my life uh prior to that we just relatively recently moved to Utah, never been to really general conference. Anyway, it was it was an incredible experience and I remember he talked about the Articles of Faith. And I can just give you kind of general ideas about what it is that he talked about as it relates to
1: the Articles of Faith. Right. So so what's true about that experience? Elder Perry actually did come and speak at your ward. You were actually there, and you were actually touched by what he had to say. Right? That, that's Absolutely. true. But that's very different than you publishing by memory a transcript of what he said. You saying he talked about the Articles of Faith and it was incredible is very different than, and let me quote now from Elder Perry. The Articles of Faith are, and, and you start going into a word-for-word transcription. That that Elder Perry was there, that you had an incredible experience, that is is, is true. That's a source that you're relating. But you wouldn't take the document of the transcript that you're trying to recreate in your mind as being an official document. Now, there are times that there are exceptions that are made when it's clear that someone is copying an earlier document. For instance, uh, it's very clear that when uh, George A. Smith is writing his quote-unquote autobiography, that it's it's later he's he's making this copy you know in the mid 1850s but it's obvious for, for by certain you know markers you see in the text that he's copying a journal that he has word for word in in many of his entries well those journals no longer exist so even though when he's writing his autobiography it's not strictly speaking a you know, a contemporary document when he says Joseph Smith told me X, he's copying from what was a contemporary document. When I say contemporary document, it makes it sound like I'm talking about like music that you hear in an elevator. But no, contemporary meaning it, it was created at the time. And historians prize documents that are created at the time far over ones that aren't. And I know I've used this example before, but unless you've listened to the entire series of podcasts, which I, I I just can't imagine that anyone has. Richard, has. has anyone, is there any way to check and see if anyone's actually listened to all of these? No. Even my mom, I think, is lying at this point. <laughs> I agree. I mean, she's a wonderful woman, but I'm pretty sure. I told her that, I, I, you know, I had someone in, in church there say, hey, when are you going to have your mom back on the podcast? I told uh, Renee that, and she said, I will never go back on. It's just so embarrassing. She's such a wonderful woman. At any rate, um, the... The the reality is that what you think about a specific experience, even a very spiritual experience, is going to be affected by your other life experiences over the course of time. And, And a perfect example of this is your patriarchal blessing. That when you first get your patriarchal blessing, I mean, you can even start from the very time those words are spoken, right? You go in, you're nervous, you know, you you don't know what this is like. You're like, please let me be, you know, Naphtali as a tribe. I mean, whatever you're thinking when you go in as a teenager, right? Um, and even between the the blessing itself and then the week or so later when you get the transcript of the blessing and you can read it, what what happens? You read through it and you say, oh, man, I forgot that he had said that. And it actually, it had nothing to do with whether or not he had said it. Of course he had said it. And then throughout your life, you go back to that patriarchal blessing over and over and over again. And how many of you have the experience that you go back to that patriarchal blessing and you read it again and you say, "Oh man, I can't believe I ever thought that it meant that this part of it meant this it obviously means this right so you know maybe in your patriarchal blessing it's like you will have a time of great trial in your life and you know and when you're when you're 17 you're like oh my goodness it was when that girl dumped me this is this is obviously what the lord is saying to me right now and then you know later in life you have teenagers and you're like i can't believe i ever thought it was because a girlfriend in high school broke up with me because teenagers exist in the world and, and this is obviously what it was. The point of that is that what you think your patriarchal blessing means is entirely affected by what's actually going on in your life and what your experiences are and, and the way you interpret it. If someone asks you right now, what does it mean? What you say to them will, will differ depending on what your life experiences have been. Well, this is what I think this means that's the same problem with non-contemporary sources no matter how desperately we try we won't be able to forget the events that have happened in the intervening years i mean this is kind of like you know my my wife likes to watch a lot of uh like investigation discovery shows i'm convinced that it's because our wives are clearly planning to murder us right i mean because they both like those shows, right? Oh, absolutely, I mean, Dateline, it, all of yeah, them. and so, and it's always you know the the guy coming on like, but but David never made it home, did he? You know that kind of thing, and and then you know they they're telling you know how these horrible you know things happen, but the 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 reality is, try as you might to replicate exactly how you felt on the day that you were married or on the 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 day that you received your patriarchal blessing or the day that you first, you know, first day on the mission, unless you wrote it down at the time, your memory is going to be affected by the fact that you know what happens next. Ask anyone who's been through a particularly painful divorce and the way they think back on their wedding day of that marriage is not going to be the same as someone who thinks back on their wedding day for a marriage that they're very happy in because we're affected by the experiences that happen to us. That's part of the problem. One of the other problems is oftentimes when we're remembering events, we tend to place them in the context of our current situation rather than what was going on at the time. This happens a lot when, when scholars are trying to place undated items, especially if they're doing it from,, um, you know, say, early New Testament documents, right? Part of the way that scholars try to date those documents is by the types of arguments and language that are being used at the time. If someone's using language that was used, you know, not wasn't used anywhere else until 400 AD, but they're claiming that this document is from seventy a d well it's it's pretty unlikely that it's from seventy a d since no one was using that language at all at the time. Now, Richard's been doing some digging over here and and tell us what you found,
0: okay. So I found uh, actually uh, a journal entry that uh, was written
1: First of all, I can't believe you kept a journal.
0: I was really good I'm in the, the year twenty twelve. I'm the worst I've journal keeper off. on earth. So the, this so this event happened on, and as as I was not listening to anything you were saying and just reading through and looking for this, I'm like, that was such a profound moment in my life. I I wish I hope that I. I'd
1: assumed you'd fallen asleep. <laughs> I didn't say rice terrace for ten minutes anyway.
0: <laughs> well, so so I went back and I looked at um, things that I wrote on the day, and it was June tenth, two thousand twelve. And we had uh, that day. I don't know what he was planning necessarily to speak about, but that day we had a young man, Preston, had just become a deacon, and so he had just been, you know, brought up to the the top uh, by the pulpit, and the bishop put his arm around him, and and uh, we all uh, we all sustained uh, him uh, receiving the ironic priesthood and being ordained to the office of a deacon. Uh, that's something that I hadn't remembered. And so when Elder uh, Perry got up to speak, he asked Preston to come back up to the pulpit with him. And they discussed the Articles of Faith together. With a deacon. With the deacon. So that well, that's had, a pretty
1: important part of the it story. It actually
0: is. It's, it's fascinating. I'm remembering it now. And, and so he would have Preston uh, uh, read the Article of Faith. And some of them Preston had memorized. And he had him read the Article of Faith. And some of them he would read with him. And then uh, Elder Perry would give um, a beautiful apostolic discourse on the meaning behind that article of faith. Well, this is a
1: great example of a central part of the context of this experience, that which you remembered, which you knew was great, was that there was this brand new deacon involved in it. Yeah, it was awesome. But when you first told the story...
0: I had completely forgotten about the deacon.
1: Which... Which I would argue is one it's of the It's the main more, part. <laughs> it, yeah, it's the main part. It's one of the more central aspects of the story.
0: It may, it was actually made it all the more endearing and sweet as this um, young deacon is up there with an apostle. And, and Tom Perry it was just a massive, tall- oh, huge guy. Huge guy. Like, with I, his, you know
1: he played football. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah.
0: And just with his arm around him, just in, in a loving and jovial uh, kind of demeanor- and uh, and so I, I wrote down a couple of things that uh, that I remembered at the time, specifically talking about the first three articles of faith, and how they teach us who we're accountable for and to. And so, anyway, it's very interesting as I go back to read this now. And my right, right, if I 10 was ten years this, ago, if I was to give this, yeah, ten years ago. Almost to the day. If I was to give this as a recollection, which I did, it was was like, hey, that was kind of neat. That was kind of a neat thing.
1: Now, imagine you didn't have this journal record. You might reference this uh, Elder Perry talk multiple times in your life. But given the fact that 10 years later, you didn't recall that aspect of him bringing the deacon back up and even who the deacon was, we could probably talk to that deacon. Right?
0: Absolutely. And ask yeah. him,
1: Do you remember
0: that experience? Right. Um He's about to get married, by the way. It's, it's absolutely hilarious.
1: It, it, well, I hope a, it's because he kept the articles of faith. A hundred percent. Follow them.
0: Well, I, I will tell you, we we went home and uh and it was a main focus for our family to learn these like, articles right, of faith. All right, we're memorizing
1: <laughs> the articles of faith. Your son's like, Why all of a sudden, dad? You'll know. You'll because know. Because I need the next time an apostle comes and it happens to be the day that you're called to a priesthood office, I need this, son. I need this. I need this for me <laughs> anyway uh, um, it's a really good example of how having a contemporary record helps solidify the things now you even have some direct quotes there now even though you have some direct quotes, if I were doing an an L Tom Perry uh, collected papers, you know if I, we were publishing the L Tom paper at L Tom papers, the L Tom Perry papers collection. We wouldn't include your transcript of the few lines that you put in quotes here, even though they're very likely, very accurate, and they are contemporary, like you, you wrote them down at the time. Why? Well, because it's not the entirety of, of what he said. Now, maybe if there was enough, and maybe you were like, you know, you were copying it all on the fly, like you're some kind of court reporter, and you're, you can type 700 words a minute, and you're like, and that would be different, right? But what would we do with that source? we would let's say that there was an official transcript or maybe he wrote in his journal or he included a copy of his talk in there then we would footnote that talk with the source that you have you know one of the uh, one of the uh, members in attendance you know the the ward, you know, building coordinator, Richard, I don't know what you were the <laughs> uh, you know, wrote in his journal that Elder Perry said, and that's how we do it. So you would be a footnoting source. You'd be a source that would let us provide some insight into the the talk, but we wouldn't feature, you know, your mm-hmm. your what you wrote down as the talk. You can see the difference there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so with Joseph Smith sources, we have this problem all the time. Because especially by the late Utah period, there are all kinds of people saying, "I remember when Joseph said X," and in general, in fact, almost in total, uh, that recollection is not a Joseph Smith. Uh, it's not a Joseph Smith document. Even if the person starts to say Joseph said, and I quote, we don't take that as a Joseph Smith sermon. So. I can, I can tell Stephen. Um, you know, it, it, since he's the only one listening now, or probably even he's given up. Cheers, Stephen. But um, uh, the that, as someone who worked on Documents Volume One, these earliest Joseph Smith documents, and and that dividing point between the um, the two volumes was right there. Uh, our volume, Documents Volume One, went all the way to June of eighteen thirty-one, and. Um, the, the next documents volume, which, which other scholars were working on started in July of 1831. And what Phelps is claiming in this letter is that it was July uh, 17th, 1831 in Missouri, actually in the Indian territory, West of Missouri, that Joseph Smith received this revelation that would actually make it the earliest revelation that Joseph Smith received in Missouri that that honor right now goes to Doctrine and Covenant Section 57. Doctrine and Covenant Section 57 was received on July 20th, 1831. So this source, um, and and maybe we should read some of it because uh the, the email gave us part of it, just just part of it though. Um, but uh it's important to to know you you can you could go into the church archives and and, and see this this uh, uh document it's ms4583 um, if you're if you're doing some church history library searches right now for it and this is um, how it starts off. President Brigham Young I have the pleasure of sending you and then it says the substance and it has the substance underlined three times as as a point of emphasis. President Brigham Young I, I have the pleasure of sending you the substance. ...of a revelation by Joseph Smith, Jr., given over the boundary west of Jackson County, Missouri, on Sunday morning, July 17, 1831, when seven elders, including Joseph Smith, Jr., Oliver Cowdery, W.W. W. Phelps, Martin Harris, Joseph Coe, Ziba Peterson, and Joshua Lewis, um, united their hearts in prayer in a private place to inquire of the Lord who should preach the first sermon to the remnants of the Lamanites and the Nephites and the people of that section that should assemble that day in Indian country to hear the gospel and the revelations according to the Book of Mormon among the company there being neither pen ink or paper Joseph remarked that the Lord could preserve his words as he had uh, as he had done till the time appointed and proceeded. And now at this point, he then begins to, even with verses, quote, or at least provide what appeared to be a quote of a revelation that Joseph Smith gave. And I mean, it's in in Revelation format. Like I said, he even has it versified. Um, And, you know, for instance, it starts, Verily, verily, saith the Lord, your Redeemer. Even Jesus Christ, the light and the life of the world, you cannot discern with your natural eyes the designs and the purpose of your Lord and your God in bringing you thus far into the wilderness for a trial of your faith and to be especial ministers to bear testimony of this, uh, this work, oh, uh, sorry, testimony of this land, upon which the Zion of God shall be built up in the last days when it is redeemed. So that's that first verse that he's writing. So you notice he's writing this as if he does have a word. I mean, he's even putting the verily, verily, saith the Lord in there, right? He's writing it as if this is a word-for-word transcript of the revelation that Joseph gave. Yet how do I know that it's not a word-for-word transcript? What are some of the textual clues that tell me that? Well, first, he starts off by saying, this is the substance of a revelation Joseph Smith gave. What's very interesting is there, now this is going to come as a huge shock to uh, those of you listening, but there are several anti-Mormon websites. Yes, yes, I know they exist. And when they use this revelation as a means of trying to attack uh, you know, the discussion about polygamy um, and, and other aspects of this, they actually, several of them I noticed, provide that, th- they cut that part out where it, wh- I'm, I'm I'm, looking at the original document right now. R- right, Richard? You can see it right looking at yeah, it. I'd even told you. I mean, it's right there. Um, President Brigham Young, I have the pleasure of sending you the substance. And again, the substance is underlined three times, each word, the underlined three times, substance underlined of a revelation by Joseph. Well, that's a clue right away that this is not word for word transcription. Whatever I'm about to read, is only the substance of what was spoken, meaning the gist of it, or this is just part of it. I mean, whatever. I mean, it's it's however he remembers. Now, again, that does not mean that there was no revelation, and it also does not mean that there was uh, no uh, that it didn't even have some of the same topics in it. But what does it mean? unlike other revelations that I know were recorded at the time, that I have records of at the time, I need to be incredibly careful, especially with the particular words, phrases, and maybe even ideas that Phelps is now providing here. Uh, Maybe, should we go on and read more of it? Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, we've come... We've come. come we've come this far. Yeah, verily, this is verse two of this uh, purported revelation. Verily, inasmuch um, as you are united in calling upon my name to know the w- uh, my will concerning who shall preach to the inhabitants that shall assemble this day to hear what new doctrine you have to teach them, you have done wisely, for so did the ancient prophets. Even Enoch and Abraham and others. And therefore it is my will that my servant Oliver Cowdery should open the meeting with prayer, that my servant W.W. W. Phelps should preach the discourse, and that my servant Joseph Coe and Ziba Peterson should bear testimony, and that they shall, as they shall be moved upon by the Holy Spirit, this will be pleasing in the sight of your Lord. So this this isn't written like it's the substance. This is written he's writing it with a versification as if it really is the actual word for word, word of the Lord. Now, if I were to compare this to revelations that Joseph Smith actually received, I would, I I think there would be, there's some significant differences I can already hear in the kind of cadence of the way Joseph's revelations. But again, he is, he's presenting it as if he, he has recorded. So, so, before we go back to read verse three, because I know you're all you're all on... Pins and needles. Pins and needles. You're wondering, who was that professor at <laughs> Utah State? But um, the other very clear indicator that this is not written down at the time is what? Phelps says, we didn't have pen and we didn't have paper. But don't worry. You know, the Lord's always preserved his words, right? So not only do I do I not believe this revelation was written down at the time? Even Phelps, as he's writing this to Brigham Young, is saying, hey, we didn't write this down at the time. But never mind, here's a crack at it, right? So verse 3, Verily I say unto you, uh, ye are laying a foundation of a great work for uh, the salvation of so many, as will believe and repent, and obey the ordinances of the gospel, and continue faithful to the end, For as I live, saith the Lord, so shall they live. Verse 4. Verily I say unto you, that the wisdom of man in his fallen state knoweth not the purposes and the privileges of my holy priesthood. But ye shall know when ye receive a fullness by reason of the anointing. For it is my will that in time ye should Take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites and their posterity, sorry, that their posterity may become white and delightsome and just, for even now their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. Gird up your loins and be prepared for the mighty work of the Lord to prepare the world for my second coming, to meet the tribes of Israel according to the predictions of all the holy prophets since the beginning. For the final desolation and decrees upon Babylon. Sorry, sometimes I'm a little halting reading this. I'm trying to do it on the fly from the from the original, and you know sometimes Phelps crosses his L's even though it's an L.
2: Well, Well, you're thinking about the
1: desolation of Babylon. You're going to cross an L. L You're going to get
2: excited. You're going to get excited. Oh, Babylon's going to be destroyed. Let's throw a few crosses in there. Anyway, uh, it
1: goes on. Uh, For as the everlasting gospel is carried from this land. In love for peace to gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth. For Zion even so shall rebellion follow after speedily with hatred for war until the consumption decreed shall make a full end of all the kingdoms and nations that strive to govern themselves by the laws and precepts and force and powers of men under the curse of sin in all the worlds. That's the end of, of what he's labeled verse five here. He then continues with verse six. Verily I say unto you that the day of vexation and vengeance is nigh at the doors of this nation when wicked ungodly and daring men will rise up in wrath and might and go forth in anger like as the dust is driven by a terrible wind and they shall be the means of the destruction of this government and cause the death and misery of many souls but the faithful among my people shall be preserved in holy places during all these tribulations now this is very interesting here that he's this he's, he's alleging here at this point that Phelps is uh, is claiming that Joseph has received a revelation about a coming civil war, this would be a year and a half earlier than when we know Doctrine and Covenant Section 87 to actually be received. So now you can already start to see some of the problems that a historian's dealing with. Phelps is recalling even earlier than we have a document that, uh, that Phelps did it. That he actually received a revelation about the coming of the Civil War. That Joseph spoke about the coming of the American Civil War is a miraculous thing that we've already talked about in a previous episode that you've probably already gone back to listen to after you got this far into this one. But that also starts to make you a little wary of it. Why? Well, when is Phelps writing this? August twelfth of eighteen sixty one. Well, what's only happened a few months earlier, April of 1861, when the hostilities of the American Civil War have commenced. So what's on his mind and everyone's mind? Of course, Joseph Smith's prophecy that this nation was, was going to have this terrible civil war. And it just so happens to make into what Phelps is recalling from this revelation, Joseph spending a great time talking about a coming civil war. Does that mean that Joseph didn't talk about it? No, but as a historian, you're going to be very wary of this because Phelps is essentially providing to Brigham Young at this point something that proves that Joseph was even more right than everyone thought he was about the coming of the Civil War. Now, it ends off with a very uh, with verse 7. Be patient, therefore, preparing your souls in peace. Oh, sorry. Possessing your souls in peace and love and keep turning the page over. uh Keep the faith that is now delivered unto you for the gathering of the scattered Israel. And lo, I am with you, though you cannot see me till I come. Even so. Amen. Reported by W.W.P. W.W. W. Phelps. Now, the important aspect of this, and actually what's driving the commentary on this, as as Stephen asks, is after this, he writes, about three years after this uh, given, I think he means this was given, but after this given, I asked Brother Joseph privately how, quote, we, quote, that were mentioned in the Revelation could take, quote, wives, quote, from the nations as we were all married men exclamation point he replied instantly quote in the same manner that abraham took hagar and keturah and jacob took rachel billah and zilpah by revelation and that by revelation is underlined the saints of the lord are always directed by revelation underlined again respectfully as ever I have the faith to be W.W. Phelps. So that's the signature there. So this is, is, is what's really standing out from what is, is provided here. That this isn't just a revelation that isn't known, but the point of the revelation is a July 17th, 1831 commandment from God for these men not to just marry among the Lamanites— but to do so polygamously. You can see why then people who are researchers dealing with the topic of plural marriage see this as an important source because this means, this would be kind of the earliest statement that we have, that Joseph knew that they were supposed to practice plural marriage. Now, it is a very problematic statement for all the reasons we've already said, but it's actually even more problematic than that. Right. Even Phelps, in his oh-so-expert recollection of the word-for-word of this revelation that wasn't written down, writes about three years after this. Well, well, it was it three years after? I mean, you'll notice when people talk about it, he said that in 1834 he talked to Joseph. Well, actually, I don't even know if it was in 1834. Could have been 1835, could have been 1836. I mean, we started off with you saying that Elton Tom Perry talked to you last week and I had to remind you that he was dead.
2: <laughs> and at, only
1: at that point were you like, oh yeah, it was a decade ago. I mean, obviously I'm being facetious here with my friend, but, but you can see how the, even that's problematic. What is he saying? That none of the men at the time apparently made that connection. Why is it taking Phelps... Three or four or five, or however many years to ask Joseph, wait a second. <laughs> if you're commanding me to get married and I'm already married, you know, th- there's yeah, trouble is, right here in River City. That is you know?
0: hilarious to think about. What? Yeah. Just hold on yeah, just one, one second. Wait
1: a minute. This doesn't add up, you know, and then three years later, three, four, two. Right. Because if seven. they're being commanded to marry, uh, Native American women at the time, you would think at the time, all of those men would say, uh, uh, "Joseph, just a just a few uh, quid pro quos <laughs> that we need to talk about, right?" Just just a few moments of your time. I'm already married, right? I mean that that would be so. The very fact that that isn't apparently, or at least according to Phelps's, um, according to Phelps's account, isn't asked at the time is something that really is going to cause us some some consternation. Part of the problem we're dealing with with this source is Phelps is both the provider of the source, the only provider of this source, and he's also the one providing the commentary on what the source means. That's a very difficult thing because He's not only the text; he's also the context, and that will always cause a historian to say, "Let's press the pause button here." Well, I have a lot more I want to say about this, but we're we're kind of out of time. Uh, I will say, you know, ending off, the reasons I've provided help help Stephen and others understand why this wasn't included as a definitive Joseph Smith paper in the Joseph Smith Papers. There is no contemporary source for this revelation. Indeed, by Phelps's own account, they did not write it down, right? And and maybe he wrote it down somewhat later, but he's the one saying, we didn't write it down, even though he then proceeds to provide some very neatly written, verily thus saith the Lord's. Second, Phelps is the only person that claims this revelation. Right? You don't have you don't have other people saying, "Oh yes, I recall this revelation." So the text is you can't use as word for word text because he's even saying, you know, this is only the substance of it. Even as I provide you know versification of it, and you you have to be careful. Was it actually a revelation that he's remembering? Was Joseph just providing counsel after they finished their prayer and Phelps learned that, you know, surprisingly, it would be him who would be giving the discourse as he's remembering this? Oh, who will have the honor of giving the first discourse uh, among the Lamanites? Well, it surprisingly was me. I mean, uh, uh, maybe that's why he remembered it. But this isn't something that anyone else is talking about. But our little, our little, jaunt which has become a a terribly tedious odyssey uh, journey uh, down this particular rabbit hole has a lot more to it and some insights that we can provide so that's what we're going to talk about next week on the podcast so please tune in and we can uh, uncover some more of of the the different aspects of this purported revelation of joseph smith Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast,
0: hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.